Let's open our Bibles tonight to the book of Revelation, and uh, we're in chapter 13, the second half of the chapter. Uh, I'd like to remind you of what the book says at the very beginning, Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. I got to thinking about that, and I thought, one day, some pastor is going to be up talking about the rapture, preaching about the Lord's coming, and he's going to come, right when that's being said. Wouldn't that be exciting tonight? We didn't finish the book of Revelation. We just watch it from heaven. That would be great. Well, here we are in Revelation 12 and 13. This is, a, this is an, an interlude, a parenthetical passage before we move on, introducing us to the seven personages that will be uh, in, the, uh, in, in the activity and the events of the tribulation period. Um, we, in chapter 12, the woman represents Israel. She was the first personage. The great red, red dragon in, um, represents Satan. The male child is Christ. The archangel Mike, Michael represents the angels, and the offspring of the woman represents the remnant of Israel. Then we talked about the beast out of the sea the last time we were here in the first 10 verses of Revelation 13. And we looked at three key passages that tell us that beast from the sea is the Antichrist. And we looked at uh, Daniel 9.27, telling us uh, about uh, when the Antichrist will rule in the middle of the tribulation period. He'll, he'll uh, go back on his uh, covenant with Israel. And in Daniel 11:36 to 39, we, we saw what the Antichrist will be like. We'll visit that passage again tonight. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, Paul described uh, what will happen to show the error of those who said that Jesus already came. Uh, he said, first, there will be a falling away, a great apostasy, and then the Antichrist will be revealed. He's called the man of sin, the son of perdition. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. He'll sit in the temple showing that he is God. And then when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, that is when believers are raptured, the Antichrist will begin showing Satan's power in signs and lying wonders. Uh, eventually he'll be defeated by the spirit or the breath of Christ's mouth and the brightness of his coming. So all of that is in 2 Thessalonians. So those are the three passages we looked at the last time we were in Revelation 13. Um, there are a few more that I'd like us to cover tonight before we move on to the seventh personage. I find it interesting that our through the Bible reading as a church has taken us just this past week through the book of Daniel. Did it raise some questions in your mind? Uh, Pastor Nate always says in our scripture reading, I hope that stimulates some conversations that we have with each other. Well, I'm going to give some conversation about Daniel tonight. Daniel records his vision of the kingdoms of the world in the time of the seven-year tribulation. Now, Warren Wiersbe divides the book of Daniel into two sections. Chapters 1 through 6 are Daniel's personal history. We read about Daniel in the lion's den, his interpretation of Belshazzar's dream. In the second half, Daniel 7 through 12, Wiersbe calls it the prophetical history of Daniel. That is, the things that will happen and that have happened in the third century. Uh, so we'll, we'll take a look at, at some of those passages tonight. So let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. I think it'll be a good time to look at a few more references here that are relative to what's going to happen in the tribulation. Daniel chapter 7, and we'll look at verses 23 through 25. 
Here, Daniel writes about four beasts, or the fourth beast, and this fourth beast has seven heads. This is the revived Roman Empire, and seven heads and ten horns. Okay, the fourth kingdom on earth. Daniel prophesied this fourth beast with ten horns, a, Satan, a symbol of Satan's power uh, over the nations of the earth, these ten nations. And Antichrist will rise up from those ten kings and will subdue three kings. So it's Daniel 7, 23 through 25. Thus he said, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, that's different from all the rest, and shall devour the earth, that's a universal work, it's not something that's already taken place, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces, speaking of the earth, and the ten horns out of this, this kingdom are ten kings that shall rise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, this is the Antichrist. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and dividing of times. That's three and a half years of the tribulation, the second three and a half years. That's a familiar statement, isn't it? We just saw it in Revelation 12, 14. Time, times, and half a time, those three and a half years. The next two verses in Daniel 7, verses 26 and 7, tell us about the everlasting kingdom that's given to the saints of the Most High. That kingdom will be established after the seven-year tribulation, be the millennium and then into the eternal kingdom. Let's read those. But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. That will be the day. <laughs> I look forward to that when the kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Well, back in chapter 2 of Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And that's, again, in the personal history of Daniel. And in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted the interpretation of it. Not only did he want the interpretation, he was asking people to tell what the dream was. Makes it a little bit harder, doesn't it? His vi vision was of an image with a head of gold, arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and his feet made of iron mixed with clay. Now that's not going to stand very long, an image like that. And he's confused. And Daniel told him the kingdom that he ruled, that is Nebuchadnezzar, was the head of gold. That's Babylon. And the following three kingdoms would deteriorate in the quality of the material, the value that forms them, until the entire image, all of the kingdoms of man, will be destroyed by a stone cut from a mountain without hands. That's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. When he comes, he will rule an eternal kingdom. He'll destroy all the other kingdoms that have, that have survived. So for 1,800 years of church history, the identity of those four kingdoms has not even been questioned. 
Kyle, you've heard of Kyle and Delich. Kyle writes, these four kingdoms, according to the interpretation commonly received in the church, are Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Medo-Grecian, and the Roman. In this interpretation and opinion, Luther observes all the world are agreed and history and fact abundantly establish it. This opinion prevailed till about the end of the last century, the end of the 19th century or the 1800s. That's as it was written. John Walvoord agrees in an article that he wrote, Daniel's Vision of the Future World History, it was published in January 1st of 2008. He said, until the rise of modern critical interpretation, the majority view is that the fourth kingdom is Rome. There's really nothing in chapter 7 of Daniel to alter the conclusion that the fourth empire is Rome and that its final state has not yet been fulfilled and that it is a genuinely prophetic revelation of God's program for human history. Well, let's turn now to Revelation, uh, Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. So what do we have? We have critics that are, that are saying, um, this isn't what we believe anymore. These aren't the kingdoms. It's going to be something else. In Daniel 11, uh, verses 1 through 35, there are specific references to things that have already taken place in the third century. There are over 100 prophecies in Daniel 11. It's a fascinating study. I would recommend that you get uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Uh, it's a two-volume set, but you can get just the one in the library downstairs. You can even photocopy some of the, the pages you need on this chapter, um, uh, Daniel chapter 11. And so uh, in that, he'll explain that historical context. Now remember, Daniel was written in 535 BC. The critics say, since he's describing everything in such detail in chapter 11 as what happened, it must have been written after it happened. And that's the way they explain prophecy. It, didn't, it wasn't really prophesied, they just wrote about it after. And so they will give a, a late date um, second century uh, instead of the third century. Remember, go backwards when it's all BC. Okay. Uh, each, um, the, these prophecies in chapter 11 are fulfilled with such accuracy that the critics and liberals say uh, it had to have already taken place, okay? Argue for a second century writing rather than the sixth. Bible knowledge commentary gives an excellent explanation of these events and how they took place in the 3rd century B.C. Uh, let me just give some of the highlights. This section describes four generals who divided the Greek Empire. The kings of the south are the Ptolemies of Egypt. The kings of the north are the Seleucids of Syria. And Israel was caught in the middle of the war between Egypt and Syria. In Daniel 11, look at verses uh, 21 to 35, and you'll see Antiochus Epiphany is described. Uh, he's the one, or Epiphanes, he was called Epimenes by, by the, the Jews of those days, but he's the one who attacked Egypt three times. On his third trip down to Egypt, he wasn't successful, and as he returned to the north, he took out his hostilities on the Jews right in Jerusalem. 
He defiled the sanctuary. He offered pigs on the altar. He was the forerunner of the Antichrist. And that was an abomination of desolation or abomination that makes desolation. That is, because of that abomination that he, that he did in the temple of, of sacrificing these pigs on the altar where pigs are unclean, uh, that the, they would not worship there anymore. It was desolate because of that abomination. But there's a much worse abomination that will take place when the last Antichrist, empowered by Satan, sits on the throne and proclaims to be God. All of that, then, is past. We get to verse 36 of Daniel 11, and he begins this future prophecy. And here's where we already covered the, the characteristics of the Antichrist that are mentioned here in, in 36 to 39. He'll exalt himself and magnify himself above all gods. He'll not regard the God of his fathers. He will not have a desire for women or regard any god. Instead, he will honor the God of forces. He'll maintain power by holding the treasures of Egypt, the nation that he plundered. We come to uh, verses 40, 40 to 45, and Daniel now records the events that will take place in the middle of the tribulation. Now remember, the first half of the, uh, part of the chapter in chapter 11 is talking about what happened already, and we can go through and, and tick off those hundred prophetic things that have already taken place. And now, He's talking about what will happen in the future, in the, in the middle of the tribulation. The he and him in these verses refer to the Antichrist mentioned in Daniel 11.36. Here's what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says. In verses 40 to 45, every occurrence of he, it's seven times, him occurs four times, and his three times refers to this coming king, so the Antichrist. He'll be in between the two kings, one from the north and one from the south. The residents of Israel will escape from the Antichrist. They'll flee to Edom and to Moab. Any attack against Israel will be an attack against the Antichrist because he has a covenant with Israel. The king of the south is probably Egypt. Again, this is future. Uh, he most likely is joined by Ethiopia and by Libya as he attacks Israel. The king of the north may be Russia. It can't be Syria because the king, it says, passes through other countries to get to the south. So we're, we're lining up some of the nations that will be involved in the second half of the tribulation. Some believe that this is Gog and Magog, or the king of the north, or Russia, from Ezekiel 38.15. Others say, no, that invasion already took place, the first half of the tribulation. Either way, it's prophetic. It will happen during the tribulation. When Antichrist hears about these two kings, he's going to move his armies from Europe into Israel. Look at verse 40. He shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. In verse 41, he enters the glorious land. That's talking about Israel and bypasses the Transjordan Trans areas. So he's in such a hurry to push toward Africa that he doesn't stop to bother with Edom and Moab and Ammon. He conquers and acquires all the wealth of those lands. Then rumors from the east and north start to trouble him, and he'll turn back to focus his attention on them. 
He'll come back to defend the area, it says, between the seas, that is, between the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea. That's Israel. He'll take the place of Christ as ruler from the throne in Jerusalem. He'll take the place of Christ by setting up that one world government and one world religion that worships him. Again, second half of the tribulation. We're going to see the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. But this is what's taking place in the hearts of men. We get a glimpse of the final deliverance of Israel in the next chapter, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, here, Michael is the defender of Israel. The second half of the tribulation is going to be worse than anything in human history. Um, at the end of that time, Christ will deliver uh, as a nation, not individual soul salvation, deliver Israel. The two witnesses that were killed by the Antichrist will be raised. The 144,000 Israelites will be sealed. Some will survive the Great Tribulation. Some will be martyred. Those who are saved will enter into eternal life. This is the first time in the Old Testament that the, that term eternal or everlasting life is used. Many who died and didn't believe will be raised to everlasting punishment. And those who survive the tribulation will enter into the millennium. Well, let's take a deep breath. <laughs> That's all Old Testament prophecy about what will take place in the tribulation. It's a fascinating study. And I recommend the Bible Knowledge Commentary to, to look through that. There are other great books that you can look at as well. So we come now to the beast out of the earth. The beast out of the earth represents the false prophet. And we're in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. This is what's referred to as the third member of the unholy trinity. Satan, the dragon, Antichrist, the beast out of the sea, and the false prophet, the beast out of the earth. The false prophet is called another beast, verse 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. He's a person. Some say, well, it could be a government. It could be an institution. It could be a computer. It could be an ideology. But John says... He saw another beast, and he uses the word alas for another. It means another of the same kind. If you remember, that's what Jesus said when he said, I'll send another comforter to you. The Holy Spirit is another comforter of the same kind as Jesus Christ. That's John 14, 6. And so that word alas is used here. And so since the first beast is a person, we would we would conclude that the second is as well. Okay? So the false prophet is a person. He's a counterfeit. He appears as a lamb with two horns. But when he opens his mouth, you don't hear the bleeding of a lamb. You hear speaking as a dragon or a serpent. Satan is a counterfeit. He always has been. The things that he tempts people with today are counterfeit. He'll, he'll say, these will give you pleasures, and they never will. These will satisfy your heart, and they never do. It's only Christ who can satisfy the heart. And so he's a counterfeit. He appears as this lamb. Uh, the Antichrist presents himself as God, but he is a false god. The false prophet 
represents himself as a lamb, but he speaks as a serpent. He's a counterfeit. These are the two, the second and third members of that unholy trinity, mimicking the only true God who exists in three persons. One God, three persons. As Christ received his authority from the Father, and we're going to compare these, the, the, the trinity, the true trinity, and the unholy trinity. As Christ received authority from the Father, Antichrist will receive his authority from Satan himself. As the Holy Spirit glorifies Christ, the false prophet will glorify the Antichrist. Notice he comes out of the earth. The word for earth here uh, is translated other places, world, soil, land, or country. And so he's coming out of the land. Some say this is a specific reference to the land of Israel or the area of Palestine, but it could be just the general word, meaning the whole world. So we don't know specifically where he'll come from, but it will be from the earth. He'll be a real person. He's a counterfeit. He'll be empowered by Satan, probably possessed by demons. MacArthur says, like Antichrist, the false prophet will be indwelt by a demon out of the abyss. He has demonic power. Let's read verses 12 through 14. And he, the, again, the false prophet, exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, the Antichrist, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast which had a wound by a sword and did live. Okay, again, this is the false prophet, and he's talking about the Antichrist as the first beast. He causes everyone to worship the Antichrist. There's a reference to Antichrist's recovery from that deadly wound which we saw in Revelation 13, verse 3. Then the world wondered after the beast. The word wondered here is duplicated. Uh, it's the word that's translated as marveled or uh, being amazed. And so since it's duplicated, it's repeated in the verse, they wondered with wonder. <laughs> they were amazed with amazement. So the world will just be amazed at this uh, Antichrist. The false prophet will persuade people to worship the beast. He works great wonders. The word wonders there is uh, the word for signs or supernatural miracles. In particular, he is able to bring fire from heaven in the sight of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by means of those miracles. Okay, it says that in verse 14, deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. To deceive there is to, veer, to, to pull someone off course. John wrote in 2 John 1.7 that many deceivers are in the world who deny the incarnation that Christ has come in the flesh. 
He says, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. An antichrist spirit will say, uh, there is no such thing as an incarnation of Christ. That never happened. They deny that. And so he's deceiving them. Jesus taught that this would happen as well. As early as the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 24, verse 24, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Notice the phrase, the wording of that verse. If it were possible, it's not. One who is genuinely born again, with the Spirit dwelling in him, the Holy Spirit, will recognize the error of the Antichrist and the false prophet. So it's, it's not possible to deceive the very elect. In fact, Ephesians 4.30 says that once you're saved, God's Holy Spirit seals you until when? Until you're deceived. No, until the day of redemption. Okay, so we have that settled. This false prophet will persuade people to build an image, to make an image to the first beast um, who appears to have been raised from the dead. Let's start with that. Did the Antichrist really raise from the dead? Did Satan resurrect him? Let me repeat the quote from Dwight Pentecost that we gave the last time we were here in Revelation 13. He said, Satan does not have power to give life. So this was, this was either uh, some trickery, uh, some, some uh, thing that was planned ahead of time. Uh, Satan and his demons do have supernatural power. The magicians, Jannies and Jambres, duplicated, duplicated some of the miracles of Moses before the Pharaoh of Egypt. And some people say, well, those were magic tricks as well. They seem to be that way, but I do not doubt that Satan has power to work wondrous works, to work thing, miraculous things against the law of nature. His demons are real. Remember the slave girl who was possessed with a demon in Philippi? She made her master's great gain by that possession of demons. And what was it? She could tell the future. She was clairvoyant. And she made a lot of money for those masters that had her under their thumb. So, I believe Satan and his demons will do supernatural things. But I don't believe that the resurrection of the, of the Antichrist was one of those miracles. The false prophet will motivate those on earth to build an idol and worship the Antichrist. When I read that, I thought of the children of Israel, who brought all their gold jewelry to Aaron, and he fashioned that golden calf, which he said to Moses, we just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. This false prophet will persuade those who are on earth during the tribulation to make an idol, an image of Antichrist, and then to worship that image. The false prophet will enable the image of the beast, in verse 15, to speak. That's the image, not the beast. That image that they created They'll give it the ability to speak and to kill any who do not worship that image. Don't know exactly how that's going to look. There are several, several thoughts that we might have. Let's read the verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. And the image of the beast 
that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Explanations may vary. Artificial intelligence in a robotic image, perhaps. But whatever happens, when it happens, anybody who sees it can go back to verse 15 and say, that's exactly what that verse says. And the Bible will prove to be true and accurate. He will cause the, the people to receive the mark of the beast in verses 16 through 18. And he causeth all, this is again the false prophet, he causeth all, both great or small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no, no man might buy or sell, save he that hath the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. The false prophet is going to be able to persuade everyone on earth to take this mark. The small and great, every age group of people, young and old, the rich and poor, every economic class, the free and bond, every social group, that mark will be in the hand or forehead. It could be as simple as a barcode that's tattooed or as complex as a computer chip that's been implanted in the hand or forehead. Some countries have already proved that that can be done and have done that. There are many ways that could take place. But no one will take the mark of the beast. And I think this is an important point to make because a lot of people say, well, what if, what if I take it by accident? Okay? There, there's no way to take the mark of the beast without knowing, as you do, it is a willful rejection of Christ as Savior. Nobody's going to take it by accident. The mark will allow people to buy and sell. All commerce will be limited to those who either, in verse 17, have the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the mark, the name, or the number. The number of the beast is the number of man, 666. And whenever you have uh, uh, somebody ask for that number, it is in our hymnal, it's a great hymn, but uh, you always wonder, you know, well, why do we name, you know, on 13th floor they leave off of some high rises uh, because they're, uh, they think it's, uh, they're superstitious. But here's the number of the beast. It's given, it's the number of man. Remember God completed his work in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so we have a seven-day week now. Uh, seven is a number of perfection. It is a number of God's creation. Man was created on what day? Day number six. So the number of man is six. Fascinating things that are here. Don't be afraid. The rapture comes first. <laughs> but realize, God will be just. And this will take place. No prophecy of the scripture will be left unfulfilled. He will do it all. He has warned us. He has warned the world what will take place. And we can go with confident assurance that God's judgment will come. And that should help us to have a greater burden for others. As we approach the end of this church age, I hope you're prepared for eternity. Make sure you're saved. Make sure you're living every day in the center of God's will. 
Make sure those sins are confessed. Make sure you're having that fellowship with the Lord. Be faithful and bold in your witness, knowing what's ahead for those who are lost. And anticipate with joy what's ahead for the believer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look forward to that day when we sing with all the blood-bought saints of God throughout all the ages of history. We lift our voices in unison and sing this hymn. And I pray that it will be as precious and as true in our lives today that we worship you by telling the worthiness of the Lamb of God. We thank you for what you have done for us. And I pray that you'll give us wisdom and discernment to see the counterfeits that are all around in religion and help us to, to rescue those who need to know the Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.